before beginning today's episode, I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the pandemic that we are experiencing right now around the globe, uh, COVID-19, also known as coronavirus. This is pretty much unprecedented. We've never in modern history experienced anything on this scale, and I would implore all of those listening to please take this seriously. Even if you think that you're going to be okay, if you're in good health, if you're not in one of the high-risk groups that will be affected by this, consider your parents, your loved ones, your friends, and take the necessary precautions. As you've probably read, those at risk include people over the age of 60, people with chronic illnesses like diabetes, heart disease, or respiratory condition. Precautions that you could take include washing your hands frequently for 30 to 60 seconds. If you don't have soap and water, you can use hand sanitizer containing at least 60% alcohol. Cough and sneeze into the bend of your elbow. Maintain social distancing. Try not to shake hands or hug people when you greet them. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth as these are access points for the virus. And avoid being in large groups. If you suspect that you have any symptoms of coronavirus, flu-like symptoms, including fever, cough, or difficulty breathing, stay home so as not to spread it to others. And if you need to, self-quarantine. The recommended period uh, by the Center for Disease Control is 14 days. Um, Hopefully, we can get this contained as soon as possible and return to some semblance of of normalcy uh, in the next couple months. I mean, it remains to be seen. Uh, for, for more information on COVID-19, please visit the World Health Organization website at who.int or the Center for Disease Control and Prevention at cdc.gov. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. You had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. Put down um, your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would uh, you rather? Right, trust me. Take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hamalom. That is hello, namaste, and shalom. Welcome to Nervous Habits. We have an exciting episode in store for all of you where two of my guests and I explain the thorny process of getting a legal education. Should we be paying lawyers as much as we do? Is law school worth the enormous investment? And does the universally loathed system of grading on a curve have any merits whatsoever? All that and so much more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. Keep those emails coming, guys. NervousHabitsPodcast at gmail.com. NervousHabitsPodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at NervousHabits underscore. On Instagram at NervousHabitsPodcast. And check out those clips on YouTube of Nervous Habits Podcast by searching for us on the tube. I am now joined by my first two guests from law school. No pressure, guys. <laughs> we have here uh, Dana Horowitz, hailing from New Jersey, the Garden State, and Caitlin Sai, all the way from California, guys. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Shit, no, I, this, this, this is their first podcast, so let's, uh, let's go easy on them. Um, so where do we want to begin this discussion here? Well, first of all, I met these two ladies. Do I, is ladies, women, girls, females? I met these two humans. Females. females. Is that the, no, that's the, the worst. That, that sounds kind of like a weird. Um, so I met them. I met Caitlin, I think 
the first day of orientation, right? Yeah, we did a, a service day. service project together, and then I met Dana the let me see the fourth day because it was that bar review. Mm-hmm. Do you guys do you guys want to explain what bar review is for for the listeners who may or may not know? Bar review is the sort of weird law school concept of every Thursday night a different student organization kind of rents out a, a bar or just plans out this bar night at the location and everyone shows up tends to be the same kind of groups of people who go out but still usually pretty fun it's kind of funny oh caitlin was gonna interject no i wasn't um but i was gonna say it's a great way to kind of get to know people in your section and to get to know people in a social setting outside of the classroom oh yeah for sure it's funny when i told my friends from home that i I had bar review they're like wait you're studying for the bar already because that's what it sounds like doesn't it yeah um but anyway, so I don't know. I figure I've been in school for the last, what what is it, like six, seven months? And I have yet to, you know, pull back the Iron Curtain and, and let the listeners that have been with the pod know, um, you know, what, what my day-to-day life is like and what the process of getting a legal education entails. So I guess the first question kind of loosen us up a little bit here before we dive into, you know, the numbers, the statistics. I mean, what do you guys think holistically about your law school experience so far? We're all, I mean, believe it or not, we're almost done with our first year. Um, we've gone through a finals period. Like, how's, how's it been? Do you guys think, you know, a lot of gray hairs, wrinkles? I mean, Caitlin, you're looking now. I'm just kidding. Uh, go ahead. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I worked for four years before coming back to school. So for me, it was just such a great experience to actually be in an academic setting. Um, I know a lot of people won't share that sentiment, but I do have a great appreciation for being back in the classroom, taking classes that are really interesting, getting to know professors that are really engaging. Um, and I think the best part is just meeting new friends. Um, and starting over in a new city that I've never lived in before. Did you think you would make friends when you when you came to law school? I didn't. I was hopeful, um, but I wasn't sure if I'd meet people that I'd click with. Um, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to kind of find my people. But luckily, I think over the last semester or so, I've definitely met some people that I think over time, as we develop our friendships, they're going to last. And just to clarify for the listeners, you're 30 years old? How old are you? Uh, well, I'm 26. <laughs> oh, I, just, I, I, just, I just rounded up. I figured it was easier. <laughs> So you're 26. And Dana, what, what about you? Your experience, your age? Yeah, I'm 24. Okay, you're a baby. I took, yeah, I didn't go straight through. I took a year, but I was doing a master's degree. So I'm almost as if I went straight through because I've just been doing school. I've never worked. Um, I love school. <laughs> I, I, I'm a nerd. I really like school. So I've been thinking it's like a really positive experience. I agree with everything Caitlin said. I think that our section, which is... If what is a section, yeah. I'm just going to get there. So, <laughs> basically, I think most law schools do this, but ours in particular divides people up into five different sections, and you're basically with the same 105 people in all of your classes. Some of the classes are assortments of fewer people from within the big section, but it tends to just be the people you're surrounded by, your social circle... And I think that our section is really great. People aren't competitive at all, which is something I was kind of afraid of because I'd heard from other people at law schools. People can be really cutthroat. Um, I think we have a really good community. People are generally like really down to earth. So I've I've been having a good time. It's of course a lot of work. Yeah. So I probably look, look. I appreciate you guys. You're putting a very positive spin on it. But listeners of the pod, you know, I've heard me speak for what combined like 90 hours. They know I'm, I have a cynical. Um, a very dark and brooding nature uh, to to some degree. And so I agree with what both of you guys are saying in terms of the experience 
being enriching and, you know, us having the opportunity to learn from a lot of people, I do think it's very competitive. Um, and I think the it, inherently when you have 105 people who were at the top of their class, who are all extremely driven, I don't know about your guys' high school experiences or, you know, college experiences, but, you know, you could you could stand out by working really hard in, uh, in school. And here, it's it's pretty much everyone's putting in the time. Everyone's you know got that got that base of uh, raw intelligence. So I don't know. I I think it has been competitive. And to be honest, to get back to my question from before about making friends, I I really have I really didn't expect to make any friends um, coming to school. So I don't know. It, it's cool that that we all you know we all became friends. Um, but uh, all right, just just to kind of like like throw something out here for you guys. A lawyer is one of the more highly valued jobs in society, just based on how much lawyers are paid. Um, <clears throat> here's a couple numbers. According to U.S. News, lawyers made a median of $120,910 in 2018. The highest paid 25, uh, 25th percentile made $182,490 that year, and the lowest paid made $79,160. So a lot of that skews towards the private sector. And then if you look at, uh, you know, you're working at a big law firm, I know all of us are, are interested in that potentially and, um, you know, a lot of our classes as well. The starting salary is $190,000 for the class of um, 2018. And then every year thereafter, it goes up incrementally. So you have a, t- a second year associate makes 200000 a third year associate makes two twenty, all the way up to uh, like an eighth year makes $340,000. So, I mean, do you guys feel, and, and, and Dana, since you have a master's in philosophy, th- th- this is kind of like an abstract question. Do you, do you think it's, it's justified for lawyers to even be earning this much? No, I definitely No, think immediately, so. no, immediately. No, no, I mean, I think this is a general societal problem of what we put value onto and how we think certain kinds of jobs are more valuable, more prestigious, more impressive. Whereas I think there are a lot of people who are working just as hard if not harder into things that we just don't value like people who work at like servers at restaurants or just literally anything and i think it's kind of arbitrary that society decides this thing is worthy of this much money and let's let's kind of like let's, let's unpack that as as our professors like to say there, there's so much jargon that we picked up in school one of them is like let's unpack that but seriously um why do you think i, I mean either of you guys why do you think that we assign so much monetary value to what is essentially just a career that's about resolving disputes as opposed to, you mentioned serving food, but, you know, the medical profession, the education industry, um, public service. I mean, what what makes being a lawyer worthy of, of, you know, more than those things? Well, I don't know if I think that lawyers are necessarily justified to being paid as much as they do, but an argument could be made that the skills that lawyers have are in high demand, and that's exactly how we... That's exactly how we assign value to certain jobs. So, for example, like we pay doctors a lot, and the reason is because there's an under, we have a scarcity of doctors in our society, and because of that, we tend to value it at a higher level. Um, is it necessarily justified one hundred ninety thousand dollars right out of school? Not necessarily, but I can see an economic argument with that. I mean, my property professor literally said the other day, we were learning about, you You guys aren't up to this because you're in a different property class, but something called uh, the law against perpetuities, which is uh, assigning um, future estates and different interests. And the professor literally said, he's like, if you guys are wondering why this is so complicated, it's because we adopted this from English parliament to make sure it was so complicated that people would need legal counsel to decipher the law and, and how to you know construct a will. So kind of your point, Caitlin, it's like it's valuable because we've allowed it to, to you know, in order to, to ensure that lawyers had justified having being paid that much, we made it that complicated. Oh, I was going to say, I think it's also weird, too, because sort of 
about what he was just saying is kind of a construct in the sense that if you compare it to, let's say, a doctor, for example, of course we need doctors. Like, people are going to get sick, people are going to get hurt. It's really important. Health, life, very necessary. Lawyers, on the other hand, we've sort of created this system where people have disputes and they can sue someone, they take it to court, there are lawyers, there are judges. And it's, I'm not saying it's not a good system. Of course, there are probably better systems. But it's kind of a weird thing that it doesn't seem like it's necessary. It doesn't seem like this is the way it has to be. Yet we've decided that we need these lawyers and we're therefore going to give them a lot of money and it's in demand. But one could argue that most of our jobs in society are not necessary. A lot of our jobs are, we're essentially paper pushers, whether it's real estate transactions or consultants. I mean, all of these jobs are not things that we absolutely need in order to survive. I think part of the reason things are so complicated beyond the social construct and beyond just lawyers wanting to make things complicated is because we live in a complicated world. We live in a world where you're trying to, essentially, especially as globalized as we've become, you're trying to bring together a whole world and you're trying to create transactions between different companies, different corporations, um, and you're trying to make it work. And I think that in, its, that in itself makes things complicated. And just to kind of infuse the, the topic, <clears throat> topic with, with a little more data, the, I, I don't know if you guys know this. Actually, I'll, I'll ask you. I don't know if you saw, if you, if you looked at my notes, but um, how, much, how much money do you think the average person makes um, mm. a, a, in, in, in the country, the average individual, not household? No cheating, no cheating. I, I know Caitlin, Caitlin was, was thinking about it. Just use, use your brain power here. You guys are Georgetown Law, soon to be lawyers in the industry. What do you think? How much money do you think the average person makes? Because these lawyers are making, you know, if, if you guys get a big law job, as I just told you, the median you know, number is close to $200,000. Mm, okay, I think I would guess 40000 Okay, not, not a bad guess. Caitlin? I was going to guess fifty. The average, according to, again, this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics after the U.S. Census in <clears throat> 2019, is between uh, twenty-five dollars and $35,000. Wow. So, and you have to understand, a lot of this um, is regionally, it, there are disparities depending on where you live. In the Midwest, it's a lower standard of living. Um, it depends on age. Younger people are earning less overall. Uh, disparities in education. But just to show you guys, you know, these lawyers are making potentially eight times as much as someone who works in the service industry, someone who, you know, picks up garbage or, you know, is a janitor or, you know, assistant somewhere. So it kind of just to <clears throat> um, supplement the discussion, it really, it really is a stark contrast. And I do want to kind of transition to your guys' personal experiences. Just, I mean, is is the money, and you can be honest, you know, is it, was the money a factor when you decided to go to law school? Or when you think about your childhood, have you always wanted to, to be a lawyer? Did you fantasize about being in a courtroom? When I was little, I always thought I'd be a lawyer. My mom was a lawyer. And it always just made sense to me. Like, I was the type of kid who liked English classes, and I was always interested in the humanities. I feel like we would have gotten along as kids, because I, I think you're the only person that was a bigger nerd than I was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I loved arguing, and I've always kind of loved public speaking and debating and reasoning, so it sort of just made sense. For a while in college, I was more on the track towards getting a PhD in philosophy, so for a while, I had a big struggle between which of those would be better. I talked to a lot of professors. And I think something that's just really difficult in general is we don't really know what it's like to be any particular profession. They can take classes in a certain area in college, and there's nothing to do with what it's like to be a lawyer, what it's like to teach, or any other job. So I was kind of having difficulty of figuring out like what's going to make me happy, what's going to be worthwhile. Eventually, I wound up on the law track, but even going into law school, there's so much I didn't know and still don't know about law or what it's like to be a lawyer, and I'm working on figuring that out. 
but it's kind of weird to make this huge decision, this investment, go to school for all these years, and not really have an idea of what your day-to-day is going to be like. It's, it's kind of interesting, um, uh, Dana, just, uh, just to piggyback off of what you just said, I feel like this is true of college as well, where, where you're, you're not necessarily learning hands-on skills, you're learning like con- uh, concepts and, and things in theory, but then you end up in the workforce and you don't really know what you're doing. I mean, look, as someone who's worked in a firm, who's worked in two firms for over four years, I can tell you that nothing that we're learning in any class, with the exception of civil procedure, we're actually going to use in big law because a lot of, especially as a junior associate, a lot of what you're doing is filing documents, uh, managing for electronic discovery. So we are, you know, civil procedure was helpful because we're, you know, doing the stages of litigation. I guess if you did transactional law, contracts would be helpful. But right now we're, you know, learning criminal law and we're learning property. And that's not going to help us if we're a litigation associate, you know, working on mortgage-backed securities at a big law firm. Yeah, I mean, um, I worked at a litigation consulting firm for two years um, after college. And that was really when I got to see the litigation process. I worked with a lot of lawyers, um, mostly in patent litigation, but... During that time, I was able to kind of learn the ins and outs of what a lawyer actually does and what the process looks like. It wasn't always fun, but I knew for a fact that... It was never fun. (laughs) (laughs) It was not always fun, no. But I knew for a fact that, you know, the reasoning that these lawyers were doing, like, that was exactly what I wanted to be able to do. Like, I wanted to be able to bring in a ton of information and to really extract the most important parts and to kind of create, not create, but to put together kind of a put together the facts so that I can present it in the best way possible. I wanted to learn how to write and to research. That was ultimately why I decided to go to law school. That's a great pitch for law school. Yeah, really, I'm going yeah, yeah, to uh, export that and send it to Georgetown Admissions. But you're right, though, in that you, you chose to go to law school because you wanted to uh, to get into the mindset of like learning how to craft an argument and learning how to, you know, how to, how to be persuasive. And I, I don't know about you guys, but now like having – you know, had a semester and, and plus of law school under my belt, I can kind of like, I feel like when I'm fighting with friends, it's very easy for me to analyze what the argument is and then like, like take it apart piece by piece. Or, you know, I can use like Iraq in my uh, everyday life. Iraq is a issue, re- shit, issue rule. I know wait, uh, one of our professors, one of our professors is literally like, if you put Iraq on the, on the, you know, final, you'll get an A. Issue, rule, argument, conclusion. Analysis. Shit. Yeah, yeah. Wait, I feel like that, that's the same thing. Application? Analysis. I don't know. I didn't use it at all last semester. I forgot after the yeah, exam. Yeah. Someone mentioned Iraq and I was like, oh, like I literally did Iraq. not do that at all. And I was like, oh no. Um, what was I just going to say? It's funny actually, as we sit here, um, I'm double fisting wine and coffee. So like and for one minute I'm like really hyper from the coffee another one I'm like really loopy from the wine but these guys are, are very well behaved and they're not they're not indulging so you know we've been in law school for just over five months and I guess two-part question for you guys do you feel like you've I mean you can be honest do you feel like you've learned a lot relative to high school or college or for you you know uh, getting your master's and also or I guess I guess let's start there like do you do you feel like you've learned a lot compared to other points in your life so for me personally, yes, I think so. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I think beyond just learning about the law, which I really had very little exposure to before coming to law school, I think I learned a lot about myself and how I deal with pressure. I think that's one of my biggest takeaways from law school in general is I have seen what I'm capable of doing because law school's a pressure cooker. Like they love to give you more and more stuff as the semester builds up and you see how you manage your time. You see how you deal with stress. You see how you ensure or you maintain your mental health and that's been a that's been a, a as important of a learning experience as it as learning the law has been at least for me personally. Mm-hmm. I think it's been interesting. So I studied philosophy in college, 
which in some ways was very distinct from both high school and law school. And I've seen a lot more parallels between high school and law school than anything else. Because generally mm-hmm. what I was studying in college was we would read these philosophical theories and we would just discuss a lot about the holes in the arguments and the reasoning. So what I learned was much more, I think, skills oriented and argument style kind of things and less about like facts. Mm-hmm. Um, so law school, you do a lot of that, but it's much more grounded in here's the case, here's the rule. You have to know that and then you have to apply it, which to me parallels high school more where like I'd be in a chemistry class and you'd learn the rules and you have to apply it. Whereas with college, most of my classes were just essay based, mm-hmm. arguing what I thought was wrong with these people's arguments. So I, I found this to be much more similar to high school. So I'm, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Dana, about the comparison with high school. By the way, shout out to Amy Horowitz for, for bringing this this champagne yeah. infused chocolate. It's super rich. Right? It's very um, good. It's very rich. Uh, I think I'm like, yeah, I'm tipsy from that champagne. No, but so uh, I, I do think in a lot of ways this feels like a regression to high school. I mean, just socially. I think, and you know, we've talked about this off the air, but um, I think in a lot of ways that um, you do have a lot of cliques or, as Madison would say, factions uh, in the environment of law school, and also in the the rigorous the rigor of the curriculum. You took a lot of AP courses. Mm-hmm. Did you take a lot of AP? I feel like it's yeah. very it, similar. It's similar to APs and, and the the pace. You know, and like in college, a lot of times. In political theory classes, you would spend like two months reading the same book or learning, you know, the same, uh, you know, Tocqueville's theories on democracy. Here, that's condensed into one lesson. I mean, if you look at any class we've taken, um, look even in constitutional law now, we, you know, we cover like judicial review in a class or two. So I do think it's similar to high school. And I don't know, I, I personally, on the one hand, I think this is kind of your point, Caitlin. Like, I, I haven't learned a lot of like black letter law, but I think big picture. I've learned a lot. It's also, it's hard to see, it's hard to like see the forest for the trees. I think when we end up having to study for the bar in, you know, a year and a half, uh, then it's going to be like, shit, we really learned a lot. Or if you even just look at your textbook at the end of the semester, you know, like some of our textbooks are like a thousand pages. And then you say, wow, like we've really blown through most of this material. Right. Um, do you guys have like one case or one, like, like I'm sure you have family asking you all the time, like, oh, like, tell me something interesting you've learned. Job interviews. I love that question. And then what do you, what do you like usually say? Like, what's one interesting thing you've learned or like what's one topic that's like got you excited in law school? I'm putting you both on the spot here. Just kind of just like jog your memory. So, um, I, so there was, okay, so there's a couple things. So first of all, there was a case in property that I told you both about that I got really into where some guy caught a baseball. This was like the funnest case ever. Have have you gotten this one yet? Some guy caught a baseball. They they like can't hear you shaking your head. Some guy caught a baseball at a game and it like bounced out of his glove and this ball was worth like a ton of money. It was like Barry Bonds's, you know, Barry Bonds, historic home run, uh, 73rd in like uh, early 2000s or something. Anyways, and some other guy picked it up and then there was a question about, what does it mean to acquire possession of of a, of a baseball? Like, does it mean you have to trap it? Does it mean you have to like bring it onto your person? And the court eventually like punted it and said, like, we don't know. We're just going to split the proceeds of the ball in half. So I thought that was really interesting in a class that's otherwise pretty dull. And I also did think, I know you said you worked in patent law, Caitlin. I thought the IP stuff that we learned in property was, was super, super cool with like, What's the logic behind patent law? We spent like a class or two um, talking about um, whether or not human tissue and the human genome could be uh, patented. So that was that was kind of cool. I have an answer that's not exactly answering the question, but I think I'm going to be providing more. Sounds insight. like a lawyer, yeah. <laughs> so more so, what I'm going to say is 
there are a lot of things that we spend a lot of time on, and it sort of goes to Ricky's point about the baseball, but that people wouldn't really think anyone is arguing about. For example, in torts, where, if for anyone who doesn't know, torts is a lot about... I don't think anyone listening knows what torts yeah. is. Did you guys know what torts, torts was coming into? I didn't know what I did, was. I did. Um, I might have known from my I actually don't even, I don't even really have like a one-sentence definition, but it's basically like medical malpractice is involved, um, negligence, if someone gets hurt, those kinds of, of general things. I think it's like any any civil liability. Something, mm, no? It's not no, a contract, contract. dispute. Like, I think it's all I civil liability. It's all injury, actually. Disputes. It's a little bit about like injury, a lot about injury, yeah. a lot about negligence, mm-hmm. a lot about intentional torts. We're terrible lawyers. Yeah, we, don't, we, don't, <laughs> we don't even know how to spent, explain torts. We spent a whole semester taking this class and really? we can't even summarize oh, it sorry. in a sentence. Which is also maybe sometimes we lack big picture yeah. in general, but I think that's... In 20 years when we're all like in the U.S. cabinet, you can play this back and then <laughs> there'll be like op-ads like they didn't know what torts was. Yeah, so anyway, in torts, we spent a couple classes talking about um, banana appeals, which was what my professor liked to call them. Basically, people would slip on a banana peel somewhere and it would be a question of was the store negligent should they have noticed the banana peel and it would be like in this banana peel it was really brown so it's probably there for a longer time this one looked fresh so many cases about people slipping on bananas things like that um also things that are kind of weird um would be sometimes you have to analyze every word in a statute to figure out the interpretation sounds boring like what's the purpose of this comma does it change the meaning what's the purpose of the word and of of Little things like that we spent a lot of time on, and that seemed kind of boring, but sometimes it can be really interesting. Another, this is just a fun one, in my international um, criminal law class, it's criminal law across borders, we were talking about this really weird case, I think it's kind of funny. So there was this guy, and he's a cannibal. And I know this case. You they, know this they, case? T- they told us during it. Is this the one where they're all stuck on the island? Maybe, no. No, there's one where. Oh, there are probably a ton of There's one where <laughs> there were like eight people stuck on an island and they were all going to die and then they voted to like eat this one guy. Oh, I, I kind of know. We so, did something oh, okay, like sorry, that. Okay, sorry. Sorry. Continue. Continue. So there's this cannibal and he wanted to eat someone, but he was. He didn't want to eat someone who didn't want to be eaten. The hell? So he put out an ad and he was like, I, heard about I this. would like to eat someone. Um, do I have any takers? And someone. Was like, yeah, you, you can eat me. And he ate them. This was recent. And then, <laughs> oh my God. I don't know okay. when it was. Maybe it was recent. And then, obviously, he got, he was part of something, legal proceedings happened. Um, but it was just weird talking about it of can you consent in a way that makes it okay mm-hmm. for someone to commit a crime? Um, so, really weird story. But law school is very all over the place. So much material, so many things people probably wouldn't really think about. So yeah, that's not really answering the question about what I like the most, but I feel like giving the listeners a bit of a feel for some of the weird things we do. That's amazing. What What's the name of this cannibal case? I'm going to read it. Like, well, I'm going to read it for I'll, fun. I'll, I'll check my notes later. All right, Caitlin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that's really stood out to me for law school, I don't have a particular case in mind, but just it, it I think it's the, the fluidity of the law. Like I, when I came to law school, I kind of assumed that everything was going to have a rule for it and we would just have to find a way to apply it. But in reality, like if you look at many of the Supreme Court cases, a lot of the Supreme Court justices, they're just trying to figure it out themselves, you know? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. I'm going to take what we were talking about earlier, but for in criminal law, the court is trying to constantly grapple with what does privacy actually mean? And what does that mean for the ordinary persons? What is, it, what is a reasonable expectation of privacy for the ordinary person? Um, and how is it going to change as technology continues to advance and continues to track every 
move that we make. That's the part that's been really interesting for me in law school is the changing times and how the law has to kind of, kind of has to keep up, but also just how human it is because you have these nine people on the most powerful court in the country and they're still trying to figure that out and they're still trying to grapple with that issue. And it's fascinating to see what they kind of do it with it, what their reasoning behind it is and why they decide in a certain like way based off of the time and place that we're in right now. Yeah, I think the the cell phone stuff. So in criminal law this semester, we're learning about like what it means to have privacy. And just for context, just in case any of you guys are curious, under the Fourth Amendment, you have freedom from any unreasonable search and seizure. And so the courts have grappled with a line of, you know, decades of cases about what does it mean for a search to be unreasonable and, you know, what's probable cause. And essentially what what they came up with in this most recent case, Carpenter, is can can one of you guys I actually don't remember the whole thing. So Shit. I I should know this for the final. So there was a a bit of a precedent regarding material given to third parties. The idea in the past cases would be that if you sent records to the bank, kind of involved in transactions, like you have a credit card, they have your information, that could be um, received by law enforcement without it being a search. But then this new case was about um, data from cell phones regarding your location. Whether law enforcement... Um, can obtain those records without it being a search. And the court held that this was distinct from other material in the past because of how central our location is and how much information there was regarding location data. So they kind of, they didn't overrule the third party doctrine. They distinguished, which means that this new case didn't apply. So ultimately, like the one line takeaway is it is a search um, if you're just getting someone's CLSI. CSLI. CSLI. Essentially, I, I, I'm really going to butcher the, the technical technological explanation, but like every time you access your cellular data, there, there is a, a satellite that um, re- somehow records or encodes your location and tracks it, and the government has access to it if they uh, subpoena the records from the service provider. And so in the case that Dana just mentioned, um, the, they got they got they got like what like hundreds of of CSLIs hun- hundreds of his location thousands, data thousands and they could recreate his entire day you know like where he you know where he went and you know who, who he went to see and essentially find out like is he having an affair on his wife like does he have medical problems you know is he like what are his preferences where does he like to eat and the court was like this is way too much information so I, I think that's that's really cool and the other thing that um, interested me was all the medical malpractice stuff just because I think that. People don't realize, and this this could be the guiding principle for all of our law school discussion, but people don't realize their rights. Like if you go to see a doctor and they automatically recommend a treatment without informing you of material risks or alternative options, you could technically bring an alter- a, uh, an informed consent claim. I mean obviously well, – you have – there has to be standing, some kind of damage. Yeah, so standing needs to be an injury in fact and – redressability, all that fun stuff that we learned. But like in theory though, people don't realize, I don't know if you guys have had doctors in the past, but they essentially will be like, you have to do this. This is your only option. Or they'll they'll like, won't tell you about the risks and you could absolutely sue them if you get hurt. You know what I mean? Yeah. There are a lot of things that people don't know about. And we were also talking about this in crim as well. There are apparently thousands of things that are crimes under federal statutes. And yet no one knows about these thousands of crimes that we could be committing at any moment. I vaguely remember the lecture, but well, I, I, I was zoning out. This, <laughs> I remember one thing he was saying that, like, not most people. He was talking about how most presidents, if you've um, smoked weed and 
subsequently have ever held a gun. It's apparently a pretty big deal, a pretty big offense, and many presidents have done this. Little things like that that are connecting the dots. If you've done this thing and later done this thing, or yeah, things like that that we just don't people aren't aware. And this kind of goes to the overall purpose of law in general. But if we think it's to be a deterrent, if people have no idea what all of these crimes are, what's the point of punishing them if it's not going to lead to any difference in behavior? Sounds like you're preparing for your final. That's literally what our our crim professor says. Okay, so n- another question for you guys. Obviously, law school is really damn expensive, and we talked about the return on investment potentially, you know, earning in the op- the highest echelon of of income. But do you got and look like like you you can be honest. Do you do you think it's worth the you know the financial investment on our end? Because what what's the tuition? Eighty ninety thousand dollars a year. Sixty sixty something. Sixty, but altogether ends up being around right because right, you need paper. sticker right. price. Need- yeah. And, you know, I, I, I obviously you guys, like your finances are very personal, but there's going to be some degree of loans for everybody. And like, do you, do you think it's worth it? I mean, either is the, edu- is the education itself worth it or is the prospect, you know, of getting a job worth it? I mean, I think a lot of people have said that what you do in your day to day as a lawyer is very different from the classes. We've touched on this a little bit. So in terms of the education, it would more so just be a personal endeavor, like whether it's for the sake of knowledge or enjoyment. Um, but in terms of investment, I mean, I think if you're going to go into big law, it makes a lot of sense because you're going to be making a lot of money. You're going to be able to pay off the loans and have a net profit. I, yeah. I don't, <laughs> econ's not my thing. Yeah. That's, that's the most basic. <laughs> it's, okay. it's not even econ. That's like common sense. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, I, I mean, I do think it makes sense. I think if you're going to do public sector, it might be a little more difficult with paying off loans and things like that, but I know a lot of people are very passionate about it, and they really want to lo- use their law degree to make a difference. They want to lose their law degree. <laughs> use, their law, use their law degree to make a difference, and at that point then, if you have these ideals that are distinct from money, it's almost not a question of the investment anymore if it's what you're passionate about and what you want to do with your life. I think it's hard to say immediately right off the bat as students. I think we're too early in the process to know exactly whether the return on investment is going to be good. I think short term, um, obviously, if people go into big law, it's probably going to be easier to pay off your loan. So in that sense, yes, like there is a return on investment. But in the long term, I think it could be a very worthwhile return on investment or it could not be. It just it, I think it really depends on what you choose to do with the opportunities you're given in the yeah. future. I think it opens a lot of doors. Kind of Absolutely, like what Caitlin yeah. was saying. Like someone could go into government. They could do public sector. They could do big law. They even could do, do in-house business. counsel. You, 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 don't even need a, you don't even need a practice law. You could just have yeah, a JD yeah, you and, have a JD and, and work on a sports you team. You can teach. Yeah. There's teach. so much you can do. Yeah, I know plenty of, um, surprisingly, plenty of finance people, like partners, venture capitalist partners, they actually have law degrees for whatever reason. It just seems to be a trend that I've noticed um, in the industry. So because mm. every industry yeah. is doing things, they're creating policies. The yeah. law is important in every aspect yeah. of life. So having that background and that knowledge and those skills can is always going to be relevant. Whatever you're doing. No, the I, I mean I, I hear what you guys are saying, but the answer the answer is no. It's not worth the investment. And, I, and I'm I'm saying that removing myself from the equation. I'm just answering it in a vacuum. I mean, first of all, I understand in theory you have the opportunity to, to your point of working in the public sector, of working for a sports team. But what you really see is by and large, most people end up uh, funneled into corporate law, which for you know some people might enjoy that, but they end up essentially paying back these loans for a long time and developing a lifestyle that is conducive with their 
corporate law income, but it's just perpetuating the debt for longer and longer. And I don't know, like having worked in corporate law, a lot of people, pretty much everyone I met, and both of you have probably had this experience too, have told me, don't go to law school, don't go to law school. And then if I turn around and, you know, if I were to say, oh, I'm interested in public interest, then a lot of them were like, oh, like definitely do that, but don't work at a firm. And it's sad because, and, and this is a whole nother discussion, but most, most people, I think if you had the choice, what would you want to do? You'd want to work for a nonprofit. Danny, you're passionate about the environment and animals. You know what I mean? It's like you, you, you want to do something meaningful, but because of the, the you know, the, the sheer enormity of, uh, of the debt, it, it just, so, so all this is to say, I don't, I know that I made the decision to go to law school. It took me five years of mulling it over, but I, I just don't think it's worth the investment. I feel like then the question is if you're going to let yourself be herded into a certain lifestyle or certain choices or not. I feel like it's obviously a lot of people get herded into big law, but that's a choice. And then it's like the type of firm you go to and what the culture is like, that's another choice. How you then live your life, how much time you spend on the cases, whether you have your phone on all night, things like that, I think are all just choices. And I think it can get easy to get herded in one way or the other. But I do think there's some sort of space for autonomy and to be able to construct the life you want to live. Again, I have no experience with big law, so I can't attest to that personally, but I do think there's probably some space to kind of like figure out what you want to do and how you're going to do it. Yeah, I would agree with Dana and that in with that point actually. A lot of it is about choice and I think when you're thinking about whether or not law school is a worthy investment, I know you mentioned, you know, it's not a worthy investment because a lot of people get funneled in. It's the same with so many other industries That's true. you know it's the same with people who go to undergrad and take on a bunch of debt and like end up having to work a job that they don't really love so i'm not really sure that's a law school specific issue i think it could be a very big societal issue you know whether or not maybe there's not enough emphasis on choosing what you want or maybe education in itself isn't accessible enough where people can actually go into school choose exactly what they want choose exactly the lifestyle they want without having to give up that much you know so i I don't know. Like, I, I think it's not just a law school specific thing. Okay. I mean, I, I, I hear what both of you guys are saying. And, and that's a great point. I think you see that across the industries. So I actually do have some listeners who are who are younger, a, a couple of people who are still in high school and, and, and middle school who might be thinking about being a lawyer one day. So, and, and it's, you know, I wish, I wish we were practicing right now so we could really provide an informed answer. But do you like number one? I mean, do you think if someone's on the fence about it, they should just say to hell with it, like go for it? Or you know, what could someone do to gain more clarity about if law school is the right the right fit for them? Because um, I'm sure, as I said, I mean, even people who are older, people in college who might listen, people who are out of college, you know, I mean, people are always saying, oh, maybe I should go to law school. Maybe you know, thinking it over. I mean, what uh, is that a good decision? What do you think that you know what would help with clarity? The one thing. I- say is I think everyone should be more informed than I was prior to starting law school. I think a lot of us have a lot of ideas from like legal TV shows about you go into the courtroom, you have this very intense case, maybe like a murder trial, just things like that. Um, Generally, if you're going into big law, you're not doing those kinds of things. If you're doing litigation, you're not even in court that much of the time, which is something I would have never thought or never would have known. So I think doing research, reaching out to attorneys, asking questions, Learning is the most important thing you can do because I think if you have one very narrow conception of what it means to be a lawyer and that's why you're going to law school, you're going to be really disappointed if you find out that big law isn't like that and you want to do big law or just other things like that. So I just think being informed is the most important thing and not doing what I did and just showing up and being like, I'll figure it out eventually. I think it's going to be fine, but I I would have preferred and think I should have done a little more investigation because it's a big decision. Yeah, I agree with the investigation portion. I agree that 
It's important to talk to people if you have a chance to get involved in the industry a little bit earlier on so you can kind of see what it looks like. Um, another thing I would actually recommend, of course, I know this isn't for everyone, but it's actually to get work experience. doesn't matter what you do, yep. just getting work experience because that kind of teaches you about how the world works in general. Um, I think in undergrad and in high school, there's very little conception of how the world actually works because you're in a bubble of academia. You're thinking about big picture stuff and then you get into the working world and you notice that there are certain things that like, you know, there are certain ways the world works that you're like, I cannot believe it runs like this. And I think just seeing that for yourself allows you to figure out, okay, like, is this an industry that I want to be a part of? Is this the process or is this what I want to do with my life? You know, um, it gives you a chance to see what you don't want. And I think as important as it is to find out and investigate about law school, it's also important to find out what you really don't want to do. It's, it's as much of um, an elimination process, I think, as much as an investigatory process. Yeah, for sure. We, we were talking about it last night, um, how there's this this pool of KJDs, kindergarten through JD, and it's people who essentially go to go from elementary school to high school to college straight to law school. They come out of law school at age 25. Some of them don't know how to photocopy. Some of them don't know how to write an email. Um, and I'm sure, you know, you, Caitlin, experienced that, in, you, you know, in your, in, in your job where you can just tell that someone was really green and didn't have work experience. So I think just practically speaking, it's important for them to, you know, to gain that. But also in terms of having life experience, if you're, if you've never had a job and you're coming out at 25, you don't know how to deal with adversity. If someone yells at you and you're very sheltered, you don't know how to, how to react and how to pick yourself off the floor. So in some ways, I do think it's an advantage that, you know, I'm, I'm 27 and, and I've been working for, uh, you know, for five years. For sure. I, I think that's, that's important. What was the other thing I was going to say? I'm going to push back against that a little. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the baby of the, the group. As the person who has no work experience, I do think it's valuable, but I don't think it's fair to say that someone might not have adversity because they haven't had work experience. I just think that a lot of people who go straight through might have worked a ton of jobs in college yeah. or had a lot of internships where they were in those environments. I do think it's, of course, different, but I don't, I don't know. I think maybe it depends on the person. I don't think that a lot of people who went straight through are going to struggle just because they haven't worked before. Yeah, I think maybe the best way to think about it is not, oh, like, do I have work experience? I think it's assessing your maturity level before you go to law school. I agree with that. Yeah, I think it's thinking about, okay, am I mature enough to take on this three-year endeavor where I'm going to be tested in a lot of ways? I'm going to feel imposter syndrome all Mm. the time in class. Like, am I, you know... Am I going to be able to handle this sort of immense pressure? And some people can handle it at a much earlier age. I know that I certainly wasn't able to, but and it took me all the way till 25 to be able to feel comfortable. But I know some people who are ready at 21 and like they do perfectly well in law school. So I think it's really thinking about what you want yourself as opposed to what you think society may be asking you to do um, or being pressured by what other people are doing or working on other people's timelines. Can you explain? You mentioned imposter syndrome. A lot of people probably aren't familiar with that. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know about the best definition, but imposter syndrome is essentially thinking that you are almost fraudulent, thinking that you don't necessarily have the skills, but somehow you got to where you got to because of a variety of factors. Many of the times people attribute it to luck um, and just thinking that you're not qualified and eventually people are going to find out about that. How many times have you guys felt that? Since you've been at school, or or maybe you haven't. I haven't. You, I haven't. Are, are, you, are you serious? Yeah, I'm being honest. I, that's so oh awkward. 
that was really I awkward. Like every day of my life. Yeah, I'm with Caitlin. Every day, wake up. I'm like, I don't belong here. Yeah, they're, they're gonna, you walk into class, and it's just like they're they're gonna figure it out. They're gonna like identify Absolutely. me. Yeah, no, I, I that's that is something that I've struggled with a lot coming to law school. It's just like I think a lot of people, especially in law school, have experience with public speaking, for example, and I don't. And just seeing all these people raise their hands in class, just so freely express their thoughts about doctrine. Like I'm just like. I don't know if I can do that. And I, I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, like w- when it comes down to it, I can. But a lot of times I sit there in class thinking like if I were in that position, would I be able to have, would I be able to do that with the same, with the same ability to articulate my thoughts like that? So I feel it all the time. I think I probably don't feel in the same way just because based on like my philosophical background, a lot of what we do where you flip the arguments and you find holes in the reasoning is just feels very, very natural and very similar to what I've done. And I also have a lot of public speaking experience. So it doesn't feel that different, which is why it feels like, oh, just an extension of what I've already done. It feels less new. Whereas because you studied business, I feel like it's more of a totally different thing. Mm. Also, something that we didn't explain, we mentioned sections, but you know, if, if this was like law school 101 for people listening, a big part of our day to day has to do with the cold calls. So how do I explain this best in, or I mean, Dana, you can, you, 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 yeah, you can, you can go for it. How do you, you know, how, how would you explain like, like cold calls to someone? So cold calls are one of the things I was nervous about prior to law school because people make it as if it's this really big deal. It is a big deal. She's going to, she's going to, we, we always argue as friends and this is one of the things we disagree on. So go ahead. Yeah. She thinks it's not a big deal. I I think it's a big deal for, I'll, I'll get into this. So basically what cold calling is, is. Generally, it happens in your very large classes. Some small classes do it too. But we have a section of 105 people. And professors have different systems. I'll go through a couple of options. But it's basically the idea that the professor is randomly going to call on you and ask you for an answer. So it's not the idea that, oh, who wants to tell me this answer? And you raise your hand. They do that a little. But mainly, it'll be like, Ricky, can you tell me the facts of this case? Things like that. The questions are never that easy. No, it, it, gets, it gets much harder. But professors have different systems. So... Some professors will have it be 100% random. You never have any idea when they're going to call on you. They just pick you. Some professors do it by, like, your location so you know when it's coming. Other professors will announce a panel of people in the beginning of class. So many different systems. Some are more anxiety-inducing than others. But it's, it's the idea that you have to read really carefully because if you don't and they ask you a question, nothing will matter, but people would feel upset about themselves and people often get upset when they feel like they said something stupid or didn't know the answer. So it's something that you have to get used to because most professors do it and it's just central to the 1L experience. I think some people are much more anxious about it than others. And I think if you're someone who gets anxious about public speaking or speaking in front of 100 people or just not knowing what you're going to be asked to answer and just on the spot having to do it, um, it can make class just like less of an enjoyable experience because you're on edge. No, I had no, cause that, that no, it's, it's a really, it's a really great explanation. What was I going to say? Well, so th- th- there's a couple of problems with, uh, with cold calls that, are, that, that lead to it being one of the more controversial aspects of the law school experience. One of them is the minutia with which the questions are asked. Like we had a contracts professor that would, dr- that would drill you on like the amount of dollars and cents of the loan. And he'll be like, you know, it's like, Ten thousand dollars and four hundred and twenty, you know, four twenty and you know, forty-two cents, and he'd be like, "How many cents?" Like, don't forget the cents, but the final, you don't even mention the cases. So it's it's really counter 
productive because you're not using any of the information that you learn. But the other thing is you're essentially putting, to Dana's point about in, in, inducing anxiety in people, you're putting students who don't have the faculties to, to deal with these situations in adverse positions with no clear benefit. It's like they can only be embarrassed. And I just, I personally have a problem with it. I've spoke to people, you know, in a, a lot of, a lot of people agree with me, but it's, it's only for one else and pretty much every law school does it. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of want to counter that saying there's no benefit. Like I, Zero. I, I actually think there is a benefit. Oh, oh, you, you disagree. Yeah, I, I do. I, thought, I, I agree with Caitlin. I thought, I, I thought Caitlin was saying, I want to counter Sorry, that. Sorry, I said it wrong. No, but, you said it right. I think I just um, I got excited because yeah, you never agree with me. I, <laughs> the thing is I don't like cold calls. I'm not comfortable with them. They make me so nervous. Like I can never really concentrate when we're doing cold calls, but I think there's a certain value that comes from practicing being put on the spot. Like no matter what you do, whether you do transactional work, whether you do litigation, at some point you're going to be put on the spot. At some point someone's going to ask you a question where you're not going to know the answer right off the bat. And just having that training, I mean just training like with being like a deer in the headlights, that's training in itself. And like just getting used to that feeling and getting used to that lack of comfort, I think there's value with that. Um, I know a lot of people won't agree with me, but... As, take, as someone who really does not enjoy cold calls, that is the one thing that I think I've gained from it is just the more I do it, the less embarrassed I get, the less worried I get. Mm-hmm. And I think by the time we finish law school, ideally, I will no longer be as embarrassed. Um, and I, you know, there, to me, there's value in that. And I'm going to add one more thing. So it's based on the Socratic method, based on the way Socrates used to go around asking people very basic questions. For example, what does it mean to be pious? Um, and then people would answer what they would think is an obvious question. And then he would further ask more questions and they would get to the point where they realize they don't even know what a basic word like piety means. So the idea with cold calling is supposed to be that you ask people questions and through your dialogue and your back and forth, you gain critical reasoning skills, you think things through. But I think the issue then sort of going back to what some of Ricky was saying is that our cold calls aren't always about deep analysis they tend to be what did the court say about this prior case they tend to be more specific more factual more about do you know this thing did you write down your Mm -hmm. notes this one case rather than what do you think about this or why do you think this happened that way and i personally think cold calls would be much more productive if they happened in a more of an analysis style and less Mm -hmm. of a factual or did you miss this case do you know this case I think it should be more of questions that anyone could answer regardless of whether they wrote it down in their notes. And I think that would actually match up more with the, the meaning and the purpose behind cold calling. I'm with you. I, I, I think a lot of it has to do with how the cold calls are utilized. Some of our professors have done it better than others where, I mean, we're all thinking of one in particular where, where the way that she asks cold calls makes it so that she's advancing the lecture as opposed to just halting it in place. And But, but I, you know, one of my biggest critiques is I just don't think as students we're managing our time properly when we should be preparing for exams and outlines when we're, you know, scrutinizing the minutia and, and the details of a specific case – and it's not going to be on the exam, like like you know, for our contracts class. Rather than you know, it's it's the last class of the semester. We, we're working on our finals. We're preparing, and and he, you know, here I am. We're learning about what was it? Uh, uh, resti- we're at a restitution remedy, and I'm just you know memorizing the the amount of the boxer salary. And it's just it's not it's just not a good use of time. So maybe if we're thinking constructively. They should have a, a the professor should have like a sound method for it, and they should like not cold call towards the end of the semester. That's what I think. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say very briefly is, 
I also think one of the problems with cold calls is it becomes a form of social currency where when people are at happy hour, when people at bar review, the discussion is, oh my God, did you see how bad this person floundered their cold call? Or wow, like this person like did much better than I expected on the cold call. And I know, you know, we mentioned high school, law school kind of has that high school-esque uh, vibe to it, but that frustrates me because people are judged based on their ability to perform in these pressure cooker scenarios. Um, so that's that's why I'm like not crazy about it. Yeah, I think that's further increased by the fact that our section is 105 people, and sometimes all you see of certain people is their cold calls. Like if they run in different circles, you don't really have smaller classes with them, and then it tends. I think that adds more pressure to it too. Because we know that a lot of these people haven't had personal conversations with us, and what they know of us is our answer to the question about this random case. And I think that adds pressure, which further induces a lot of anxiety in people. Because everyone cares about what people think of them, how smart they are, especially in this kind of environment. I think everyone wants to feel like they're special, or they're capable, or they're doing good things, and no one wants to feel like they don't belong, kind of going back to the imposter syndrome thing. And the thing is, like most people, I, I know. I, okay, so I know most people don't really like like care that much, or most people don't really listen. I think it's exacerbated for me because I have that like obsessive compulsive personality, and and I've mentioned this on the pod before in other episodes where I actually remember I have this this sharpened memory where and we were t- the other night we were just like having drinks and, and kind of like like you know shooting the shit about this, and I actually remember like vividly like when each of our friends was cold called and what the cases were and how they responded. So for me... Most people don't remember that. Wait, yeah. it's funny because it's like, before you continue, a lot of people joke about it. And like, oh, don't take cold calls so seriously. Like no one will remember, but Ricky remembers. It's funny, our professor, our crew professor emailed us. Um, it was random. He was like, hey, I just want to let you guys know, like I appreciated how so many of you participated. And he's like, don't worry, like if you ask a stupid question in class, because no one will remember on Monday. And I actually like like thought to myself, challenge accepted. Um, but I, actually, I do remember and it's frustrating. Okay, last last question I ask you on the, the lawyer front, law school front, is um, another kind of controversial thing about law school, probably even more controversial than cold calling, has to do with the curve, the nature of grading on a curve, mm. which I, I, I'm not entirely sure if it's specific to Georgetown, no. but how do we feel about that? Is that equitable? I mean, is there any any advantage to that? Here's the reason behind it, at least as far as I know. Well, what, what is the curve first? Okay, so the curve is something that happens with first-year law students, and I think every law school, or at least almost all of them, where it's, I think it's a bell curve, right? It's sort of a distribution. The way our curve works, I'll just say the numbers so it'll make more sense, is generally speaking, around 12% of people get A's, around 17% get A minuses. I think B plus is close to 30, B around 40, a few B minuses, maybe a C plus. That probably won't add up to 100, but you get the idea. You spent a lot of time scrutinizing this data. She's just going off the top of her head. Yeah, that was just off the top <laughs> of my impressive. head. impressive. And classes will change it a little bit, but it goes sort of in that, in that direction. Generally, the idea is supposed to be B plus is kind of the average. I think the, the average GPA is probably a little lower than that. But yeah, so that's the curve. Not everyone can get an A. And... The, the reason behind the curve is the idea that there are a lot of talented students, a lot of us, most of us, all of us, top of our classes, and the school believes that they need a way to differentiate, and if they could give out as many A's as possible, I think most people would probably get an A or an A-, minus. and for some reason it's thought that that's not a good idea. Um, I don't know that I agree with that, just because I think even if we all had good grades, 
there's still other ways to differentiate candidates for jobs based on what other things you do, based on your personality, your interviewing skills, your background. So I, I don't see so much value in having a curve and forcing people to get certain grades because there's not enough space. Like, let's say, like, half the class, like, genuinely deserves an A. Mm -hmm. I think that a professor shouldn't give someone a B plus just because there are too many A's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what's really unfortunate about the curve is it really doesn't come down to how well you do or how well you understand the material. It's how well you do in comparison to everybody else. And we only have one exam. At least in our class, we only have one exam for the entire semester, so a lot of it, yeah. Which is another problem. A lot of it comes down to how you were feeling that day, um, how well you understand the way the professor thinks. That's huge. um, And, you know, whether or not you're a good writer when it comes to time-pressured situations. So a lot of it is, in my opinion, a little bit arbitrary. It's a little bit hard to tell. It's, personally, I think it's in no way an indication of how good of a lawyer you're going to be. Mm -hmm. No. And they constantly remind us of this, but it, it's it's hard to buy it when, you know, you're on the lower half of the curve and you're like, well, I just suck, you know? Um, so, yeah, like, I think the curve is a little bit arbitrary, but I, I think part of the reason this tradition has lasted is because I think schools have a hard time thinking of an alternative. I mean, in general, we live in a society that's relatively competitive, it's hierarchical, like, you know, there's always someone who's the best and someone who's in the middle, someone who's not in the middle. And I think it kind of models after that. Um, and, yeah. and I'm not really sure, like, I, I think a lot of it comes from schools not knowing what the alternative would be to measure students because, yeah, sure, they can have great interview skills, great interpersonal skills, but at the end of the day, like, those are very soft skills and we have nothing to really base, I guess, academic abilities off of, you know? Right. So a lot of it's just a lack of standard. Mm-hmm. And some schools have started a trend of switching to no grades, mm. but they still have things like highest honors, high honors, other things like that. Yeah. So it's even from those systems, differentiation still comes through. Yeah. And it's almost like our society or is just not capable of having everyone do well. And Like there has to be some kind of, you're the best, you're the right. worst, some kind of differentiation just based on the way we tend to do things. I mean, we do that not just in law school. We do that mm-hmm. in when we do SATs. We do that yeah. when we, we're in college. I know my classes were graded on a curve in college as well. So I think it's a really big reflection of, what we as a society consider as success and it's really reflected in all our academic settings so i don't know it would kind of require a shift a complete shift in mindset as well what's most frustrating is is the effect it has on relationships because you it's it's inevitable in any context to compare yourself to your friends and and your peers but we're literally like our grade is how did ricky do compared to caitlin how did caitlin do compared to dana like if caitlin gets an a statistically speaking it's less likely that ricky and dana will get an a so it pits people against each other and not every school you mentioned alternatives harvard just has uh, pass high pass and low pass and it's like but then that's sort of just like the thirds yeah like there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that and then you're not pitted against each other i I think that's almost it's almost worse yeah because then it i don't know because at that point it's like either you're like top third your middle third your bottom third if you're bottom third you're gonna feel just as unhappy as you would if you got b's so i feel i don't know i also think yeah yeah i think the one thing that i'll (laughs) i'll say about the relationships is i thought and i was surprised by this i thought people would be a lot more investigating regarding other people's grades that's something i experienced in high school where people would constantly be like, what did this person get? And they sort of constructed it. There were a couple people in my high school who 
found like a system to like hack into people's naviances and find out their SATs. Wow. It was my high school. Was you guys dramatic. were crazy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was never part of those things. I don't care about other people's grades, but a lot of people were really invested because there's just a lot of pressure on it and you wanted to know how you were doing compared to someone else. Because if a lot of people are doing better than you, you might not get into Yale, you know, things like that. So what I'd say is very few people have been discussing their own grades or asking other people. People talk about it more so as jokes. Like, oh, I did terrible or, oh, I did okay. Like, uh, who knows? Which I thought was sort of pleasantly surprising just because I thought it would be more people being a little more sneaky and trying to... Because you, you know, like, if you find out other people's grades, then you have a better idea of how you fit into that. So I really did think people would ask a lot, but I haven't found that. Yeah, and I think the thing about grades, and you're right, like, it does pit people against each other, but I also think that a lot of that is a choice. You can choose whether or not you care about what other people are doing. And at, at the end of the day, like, it really is your attitude towards it. And I think we're very lucky to be in a section where, I mean, I'm sure we're all competitive to some degree. Like, for I'm sure. sure sometimes I've, like, sat next to someone like, oh, like, they're for sure going to do better than me in torts, but, um, <laughs> like, Ricky's going to do better than me. That's not true. <laughs> our, our grades are in, Caitlin, yeah. Um, but, you know, I... I, I I think as long as you have some sort of awareness that, like, you know, it's not everything. Grades are not everything. Mm -hmm. um, then you become a little bit less competitive with people next to you. It might just be our section where people aren't really that crazy about it. I've heard other mm. horror stories, so we'll see. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think there's always a way to not let that affect you. But you just have to put in the effort to not let it be such a big part of your life. Yeah. I do you feel like there's a structural problem in law school of and there's so much emphasis being on grades because I didn't yeah. think there was this much pressure in college. There wasn't. I don't know about <laughs> other experiences, but it, yeah. people didn't care that much. It wasn't a big deal. And I think that the school's attempts to decrease the pressure wind up increasing it. Like in orientation, there were all these talks about, oh, grades aren't everything. But that <laughs> further emphasizes that they kind of are everything. Grades aren't everything, but at 2 p.m. you'll meet with your career counselor and they'll tell you that yeah. grades are very important. <laughs> yeah, that's, what, that's sort of what happened. And... I think that environment kind of just feeds into this idea of seeing your grades reflective of your self-worth. I don't think it has to be that way, especially because more and more we've all been talking to people who are at um, really good firms and are like, oh, I didn't like do perfectly or this or that, or I started here, I wound up there. And we don't hear those stories. All we hear when we go in is grades are super important. It's like the biggest important, the most important thing for your jobs. And it's not make it, break it. It's not end all, be all. I just think I just butchered all of those expressions. No, 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 no. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. They were all a little bit off. But ultimately, <laughs> I think that a lot of pressure is put on grades in a way that it's not actually reflective of what happens in the industry. Like, if you don't do that well, it doesn't mean you're not going to get a job. But somehow we all believe these things. And I think yeah. law school in general in general, perpetuates that. Yes. Yeah, so something you said, I want to make sure that, that, that I emphasize it. Your grades don't reflect your self-worth. And our professors say it, but I want to make sure that if you're listening to this, you really deeply internalize it. No matter what, how you perform in an exam, it doesn't mean that you're dumb. It doesn't mean that you're like a less worthy person. It doesn't mean that you don't deserve your successes. And it's something that I personally struggled with in the fall when I got my grades back is like, wow, you know, I thought I was better than X number. But you really have to remember like it's – I think Caitlin was talking about it. It depends on like how you felt that day and all these factors outside of your control. But the other major inequity, which I actually mentioned in my November mailbag episode – is the only grades that matter are your first year grades. And this is a, a systematic problem in law school. It's a three-year education, but in order to get a job, you, they look at your first year grades to determine your second year internship, and your second year internship almost always leads to your postgraduate job. So I think that's, you know, if, if you want to look at systematic problems to law school, Obama mentioned this a while back, 
you don't first of all you don't need the third year and second of all there should be more weight placed on showing improvement as an upperclassman and also to add to that once you're not in your first year you get choice about the kinds of classes you take and take material that actually interests you so it's unfortunate that none of that is reflective because a lot of people perform better in subjects they care about that matter to them yet first year grades are about these classes that we don't have any say in taking that's a great point okay yeah, guys. So, um, <laughs> I'm I'm trying to think what's the most like like neat transition because we've been talking mm-hmm. about law school and being a lawyer. But oh, I have one. I have give, one. Give me a good transition. So, the entirety of our lives tends to be in the library and doing work, and sometimes we forget that there are other aspects of life. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Such as today, as we record this, is February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day, guys. Um, Caitlin, I'm gonna need some more of that wine. Um, <laughs> so essentially. Oh, you actually meant it. No, I, I actually, I actually. Just so you guys know, I don't, I don't bullshit. When I say, when I say I do something, I did a whole bonus episode with Adam where we were just like taking like drinks every 10 minutes. But no, like today's February 14th. Today's Valentine's Day, and you know, what do we have thoughts on that? What do you, what do you guys think? Is Valentine's Day is is it is it like a real holiday? Should should you know kids have off from school today? <laughs> We ever had it off from school? Really? Yeah, absolutely not. No, it's, it's not. no, it's not even a holiday. <laughs> Thoughts on I, love? I, ooh. Thoughts I'll on love? Valentine's Day. I'll veer a little bit into love. All right, veer. So, my my grievance with Valentine's Day, and I, I don't mean this is probably going to sound a little cynical, but you know, that's okay. You, um, you've been like so like optimistic for for the law school stuff. You can be cynical. So, oh, that all of my love talk is cynical. So, <laughs> Valentine's Day, I think, has in this day and age transformed into sort of a material thing in the idea of like if you're seeing someone you get them a gift like flowers or chocolate or this or that and it's also i think transformed into displaying your relationship for example with instagram almost everyone who's in a relationship feels the need to post something about their significant other about how great they are how happy they are and it's almost become it's not even about you and your relationship but it's about proving it to other people and also proving it to each other a little bit too. So I just think, I also think, and now veering into the love direction is kind of a, a weird holiday of like, oh, like you're, you're dating someone, you're seeing someone, therefore there's this day that we just decide is like a display of love or, you know, it, it's a little strange. Love also, I think is, Caitlin and I were talking about this earlier, we were in a discussion about how it's a bit of a potential societal construct, maybe not. Um, romantic love, by Romantic the way. love, sorry. Not, Every, when I not, like, love, not like loving your children no, or loving no, no. your parents. I, I just mean romantic love. Is a style contract. Yeah, so I, I can go off on this a little bit. I think like what's interesting is romantic love, the way we think about it today, I think is sort of a modern thing. Obviously, in the past, people got married for property reasons, for money. It was an economic sort of situation. It wasn't based in romantic love. In the same way, and Caitlin and I were talking about how people probably developed that kind of love, but I think our conception of love, and by love I mean romantic love, today is based a lot like on what Hollywood produces and on these ideas about meeting your soulmate and having it be like passionate and exciting, and in a lot of ways I think we forget that there are probably like other kinds of romantic love, and we put a lot of emphasis on romantic love in society as well. Like your whole life is built around it. I feel like a lot of people feel inadequate if they don't have it, they feel like it's it's what gives their life meaning. It's kind of weird too how I'm just throwing everything out there. No, right you're now. Good. It's kind of weird too Absolutely. how let's hear how the way that our society functions and what's expected is like you find this person who's gonna be your partner, you live with them, eventually you build a family with them, like they're your person. 
it's kind of like there are other ways you can imagine things being like you could live with your best friends you could have just like it's kind of a weird construction that we've decided is the way things go in society but it's not as if that's how it has to be we've just decided that's sort of the way your path goes that's that's a lot that's a lot to digest <laughs> a lot um, to unpack <laughs> At, 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 you're you're more cynical than I am about this. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so more cyn- I'm more cynical than you on literally everything except love. Yeah, I was I was gonna. I mean, I I think there is a lot more spotlight on love these days in terms of the movies that we see, the fairy tales that we grow up with. But I think at the end of the day, like it is just a reflection of what human beings deeply desire. Like the idea of romantic love from these movies, they don't come out of nowhere. You know, it's not these Hollywood producers who are like, okay, let's create this idea that like two people can love each other forever and their soulmates. Like it comes from some sort of like, whether it's a cultural or an innate belief that like people can find a place where they belong with someone else. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree that it's, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg argument, right? Which one came first? Um, I don't know if it was like things like media that really made us this way. I think maybe it perhaps exacerbated it, but you know, the the inherent idea, like we want to have companionship, we want to have connection, like we want to be able to talk to someone and go home to someone on a daily basis. Like I, I think that is very, very ingrained in our history as human beings. Like, I don't know if that's a recent development. I think the reason why we look for quote unquote soulmates today on people that like we, quote unquote fall in love with is because like we have we have the time and we have the luxury to you know like in the past maybe not maybe there were other louder cultural influences that aren't as loud today which is why like we didn't put as much of an emphasis on that and today we have the ability you know we're not struggling to find food we're not struggling to survive you know we're you know we're in a time where we can actually have the time to think about this so I guess that's a really long-winded way of saying like I don't think it's just like a social construct I think part of what it's become is somewhat of, of a social construct, but the inherent idea of it is, you know, a, a part of what we as human beings value for whatever reason. I just want to say it's it's refreshing. It's good to get, like, the the opinions of, like, women on this onto the show because a lot of the, like, if you've listened to the pod, which I hope all of you have, it's usually just dudes talking. Like, on the bonus episodes, it's Jeremy and Stephanos and um, occasionally Holly, but we're talking about things like love and relationships. So it's it's refreshing to hear, like, women talk about it for a change. I do think there's a common thread in what both of you guys have said in in that love has become like a capitalist, like a commercialist enterprise, which kind of feeds into the conception behind Valentine's Day. But just to be clear, like neither of you are, are denying that love exists though, right? Because it used to be thought that love, that there was no such thing as love and all we had was our sexual and aggressive drives. But then back in, I think this was the beginning of the 20th century, a guy named Harry Harlow did experiments with rhesus monkeys. You might have heard about this. And it was, it was really cute. It actually, kind of, I might like cry like talking about it. But <laughs> essentially, he took these monkeys and he put them in cages with, with um, two types of like dolls. One of them was like soft and cuddly. But have you heard about, I've this? Heard about this? And like didn't give them any like milk or anything to eat. And one of them was like hard and metal and wiry, but like fed them and nourished them. And conventional wisdom says the monkey is going to go where the food is because that's how it's nourished. No, the monkey said, I don't want food. You know, fuck the food. I want to be like cuddled by this like, like, you know, doll. So you see it in all organisms, this like drive and this need to, to, to love or what, I mean, love is just like a word to, to express companionship and affection. So I do think it's real, but I also, I think, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's powerful and I think it's, it's, overall and a net positive for society because just thinking, I mean, you have the philosophical background, 
like utilitarianism, greatest good for greatest people. Love has inspired and motivated people to you know to amazing things. Love is what creates heartbreak. Love love is what you know creates art and and engenders music and all these beautiful things that if we had a world without love, um, they would never come to being. So I don't know. I I think that. I'm like a, a proponent of that quote. It's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, because I'm I'm like a big I'm a big love guy. I have so many responses. Okay, let's see. So hear. many. Okay. So many. Like I'm okay. I'm gonna start with the whether or not love exists. So I think a question first is: Is there a distinction between romantic love and familial love? Mm-hmm. And if so, then the question is: What's different about romantic love? Like, is romantic love just really strong family love plus sexual attraction? And if not, what is the extra component? Like, what what does it mean? So that's that's just food for thought there. The other thing I wanted to talk about. So this was, I was actually going to ask you guys about this. I was going to pull a Ricky. And, pull a Ricky. And ask yes. a question. I asked the questions on this pod. <laughs> but the idea of a lot of times people refer to love as irrational. Okay. And whether that's a good or a bad thing. Some people think in some ways it could be a good thing because it leads to these beautiful movies and art and we just have so many strong emotions and feelings about love that sometimes makes us do reckless or crazy things that we deem romantic and whether or not that's a good thing because yeah it leads to beautiful artwork but it also can lead to people flying across the country Mm -hmm. and missing work just because they want a chance at seeing someone or just crazy things like that that we all do and maybe it's a good thing but maybe it's a bad thing and maybe it's detracting from other aspects of our life and just from like our values and what we think we want because we have all of this weight put on love it makes us do really stupid things and i don't know maybe it's a good thing maybe it's a bad thing okay uh i i also have a couple of responses number one god you're so cynical number two is uh <laughs> n- number two is you mentioned the first thing you said was is there a distinction between romantic love and familial love so i mentioned this in one of the earlier pods there's a conception of love that says that love is there are three stages of love there's passionate love the first stage which is generally like lust and and hormone induced like the honeymoon period then there's what's called compassionate love which is where it becomes less less um lust and physical attraction and more rooted in like an emotional connection and then there's what's called companionate love where it becomes almost like a friendship. So to answer your question, I do think it's romance infused with familial love, at least when it's like reached um, its apex. Now, in terms of the... Irrationality. Yeah, the the irrationality of love. I don't know. You have to distinguish between love and infatuation. I think generally, I think, yes, people that are in love do things that defy rationality. They'll, you know want to propose to someone that they just met. You guys probably know people like this who are like, I met the love of my life. It's like, dude, calm down. It's been one date. Um, pulling like a <laughs> yeah. Ted Mosby. But like a lot of times that's infatuation. I think I think you have to look at love from a macro, not a micro level. Yes, Dana, you can point to one event on a timeline and say this is one person acting illogically, but you have to kind of take the full expanse of what their experience is and I, I think generally love is is not irrational i think you can mm. point to instances of rationality with anything yeah i mean i think part of the reason well i don't know if it's rational or irrational i think part of the draw is because it seems irrational um the reason why we're so drawn to it is because like it's like the one thing we don't really know how to explain um there's so many things especially in this world when we've become more and more scientifically driven there's so many things that used to be mysteries that are now explainable by science you know and I think this is the one thing that we haven't quite been able to understand ourselves which is why there's such an interest in it um what I was gonna say is um 
love <laughs> we were talking about uh, uh, irrational irrational so okay this is going a bit back to the monkeys i love the monkeys so i mean there's a question of like what do we even learn from that study like people want affection but monkeys we yeah. monkeys well i mean people and people, people are monkeys people are monkeys yeah i think like the takeaway from that study is that people want to feel warmth and affection and and nurture yeah but it's unclear whether that translates to love and if if it does then is all we're looking for just affection and nurture which is also a further a further point that i think is interesting is is love sort of all about us or is it really about the relationship Mm. because obviously and this is also a debate about friendship it's the idea is that it's a friendship it's supposed to be a mutual thing but of course and this is a bit of, again, a cynical perspective. Of course, most of the things we do in life are because of what we get out of it. Like you have a friendship because you enjoy their company, you like being around them, they make you feel good. So in terms of love, how much is it about what you gain from it versus some independent value of the thing you've created together? I feel like so Dana did debate and um and I obviously did debate in mock trial for for a long time. So like this is morphing into like into like an interesting debate here. But what you just did, I think, is an, is an, is like literally just a semantical, like argumentative t- technique. You, you, all you were saying was like, let's break love into its simplest components. Like people don't want love; they want the parts of love. But that's kind of circuitous because, like, if people, like, so, so what is love? Love is affection. Love is is um you know feeling of, of strong attachment. Love is companionship. But if people want each of those things, then holistically, people want love. And then the the, the second thing you said was love is about them not us. I think that you can make an argument no matter what that everything we do is motiv- is like motivated by, you know, self-interest. You know what I mean? Like like yes, in theory like love is like loving someone more than yourself, whatever the the maxim is, but like at the end of the day, you know, you're going to do like evolutionarily you're going to do what's what's in your like biological, you know. And this got me thinking like maybe the reason why we as a society are also fascinated by love and this might not be a super coherent um, argument is because like yeah like we are self-driven creatures like we do things to survive but for whatever reason this this thing called love like drives us to be a little less selfish ideally and I think maybe that's why we're so drawn to it is because like it changes our behavior that's in a way that's somewhat counterintuitive to what we ordinarily would do in a setting where we're trying to survive and we're trying to you know we're trying to 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 ensure that like we pass our genes along, we live long enough to pass our genes. Right. So I think that could also be part of the reason why now there's such a fascination with it, and I, I there's probably there's probably been a fascination with it for a very long time. You know, like if you go back to the history of human beings, like these i these stories of love have been there since like right. the the Greeks and the ancient Greeks before and Instagram. Romans. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So you know, it, it's not it's not something that just started at you know, a hundred years ago. It's something that started a very, 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 very long time ago. You know, maybe it's just been a part of us as humans for a very long time. It's just manifesting itself in different ways these days. I think it's interesting that both of you were talking about love in the sense of unselfishness, of like, wanting to do things for them, whereas I was thinking about it in terms of what you gain from them, which is kind of like flip sides. I think both are, both exist in any relationship. But now I have another, I have a question for you guys. So I think this is sort of a a hot topic for our generation. Hot topic. I love it. the idea of whether one person can ever be enough for you and whether, (laughs) whether it's like, not, not you guys personally, but like just the idea of it. And also 
whether you think that's a good thing or whether we think it's a weird and potentially harmful idea to think one person can give you everything you want or need. Mm. Careful, my mom is listening, and prob- probably <laughs> your mom's too. No, um, look, I mean, we, we we've both we've all talked about this like off off the airwaves, but I think that, and I, I've mentioned this on the pod before. You need to modulate your expectations. I think that it's easy to to be a hedonist and to constantly be craving the next person, the next person, the next person, the next person. But like, if you enter the mindset of, you know, no matter like what this next person and I like this, you know, you mentioned it's familial or friendship oriented. Like this next person is going to be it for me. I don't see why like you you can't be monogamous for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's it's hard, but it's no different than like being having celiacs and not be able to eat bread anymore. You know, I mean, I know it's like a weird analogy, <laughs> but like. It sucks. Like you think, you think like our friends who are gluten, like they don't like, you know, they don't want to eat bread. I mean, you're you're vegan. Once in a while, you probably crave a hamburger, right? Maybe not. But uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's all, you know, it's all just you need to set your expectations. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of one person can be enough for you is, in my opinion, kind of a dangerous thought. I think, I don't, I don't want to make generalizations, but I, you know, just having discussions with my friends, a lot of times they think it's going to fix their problems. They think Mm -hmm. it's going to somehow make that emptiness go away. And arguably, sometimes in the beginning, temporarily it does. And I think that's the draw of it. That's why so many people want to get into it so quickly. Um, But I think in the long run, it is a dangerous thought because you're going to be wondering why you still feel a certain way, even though you got the person that you wanted or you have the person next to you. Um, So I, I think it's a balance. I think... You know, you don't want to close yourself off completely. Like, oh, like, I don't need anyone. Like, you know, I'm an independent woman. Like, I don't <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a healthy thought mindset either, you know. But um, I think it's being able to kind of balance this idea of, like, I'm going to find a way to maintain my own identity while being with someone else who hopefully adds to my life and find a way to complement that. And I, I think there's not enough emphasis on that. Um, and that's something I had to learn over time is, you know, this idea that you finding someone is not going to fix everything. Um, it could potentially make things worse for you, you know, but, but you, you, you have to be able to balance this idea of you as a person, like who am I as a person? And then who am I when I'm with someone else? I feel like that's really interesting. It also made me think of this saying that really bothers me. I don't know what you guys think about it, but you know when people say things like you can't love anyone else if you don't first love yourself? Yeah. yeah. Which I always <laughs> find, like, if you don't love yourself, then it means also you're loveless and gentle. So it's just like, <laughs> you're, you're, you're screwed at that point. So yeah. Cool. See, I, I don't... Feel like, sorry. I oh, no, go for it. I said, like, I don't know if I necessarily... I, I think it's become a mantra today where people are like, you gotta love yourself before Self-love. you love someone yeah. else. Yeah. And, um, like, I, 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 I buy that argument to a certain degree, mm-hmm. but I, I, I think it's kind of, on the other hand, put too much of an emphasis, like, okay, I gotta love myself before I can do anything else. I think mm-hmm. learning to love is love someone else is also the a process in itself to it's a learning process in itself just like how you love you learn to love yourself so i think both of these are learning processes and they're not not i don't know if they necessarily take place in a sequential order i think when people say you have to love yourself before you love someone else i think the reason people say that is because yeah arguably it makes your relationship a little bit easier as you go along you know like you don't you're not constantly dealing with insecurity if you're at a good place in your life and you're with someone who's also at a good place in your life. I don't know. I, I don't know how exactly I feel about that phrase. Like, I think there's a degree of truth to it. Um, but I do think we take it really far sometimes these days as well. What do you think, Dana? Have we convinced you? <laughs> no. No? Ah, well, well, well maybe, we've, maybe we've convinced convinced our listeners. All right, so, so as I tend to do at the end of the, uh, the, the episodes, I do a, a recap of the discussion just in case you, you know, zoned out for a minute. So we covered the value of 
being a lawyer relative to the rest of society, whether or not their high salaries are justified and whether or not the investment of going to law school is worthy. We talked about our personal experiences growing up and, and if we wanted to be a lawyer and what we've learned in law school, different different takeaways from classes and, and uh, cases. And we also uh, kind of critiqued the system of cold calls and the institutional systematic problems with uh, grading on a curve and touched a little bit on love as well on this on this Valentine's Day. Next week, we actually we have a bunch of exciting episodes of the pod coming up. Looks like I, I have, have some stuff written down I'll share with you guys next time. So make sure you're subscribed to the pod on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and stay tuned for more episodes. Dana, Caitlin, Thanks for coming on to the uh, to the show. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Caitlin, thoughts? This was fun. This was fun. Um, <laughs> okay, kind of. Uh, guys, make sure. Uh, as I said, Apple uh, Podcast, Spotify, follow us on Instagram at Nervous Apps Podcast on Twitter, Nervous Apps underscore, and write in if you disagree with Dana's cynical outlook on love. Um, write into Nervous Apps Podcast at gmail.com, Nervous Apps Podcast on gmail.com. I'll share some of those emails on the air and more to come uh, with you guys soon. Thanks for joining me and stay nervous, guys. <laughs>